This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking in. Artist Billy Zangewa works with thread, needles, and pieces of raw silk to sew powerful, tender scenes based on her life at home. Her latest collages at Lehman Maupin's London and Soul Galleries explore matters of family, ritual, and domestic life. They also provide an unflinching, intimate, and optimistic look at the artist herself during a challenging time in our collective history. But, as Billy explains, the path to making this work has not always been easy. It's meant learning to trust her gut, steering clear of bad advice, and taking time and care to know and love herself. Billy Zangewa is my guest on this episode. I'm Howie Kahn with Common Decency. I'm so happy to be talking to you. You are having an incredible year. You have a a new show up in London. You have a new show going up in Seoul next week. You have a a museum show that's that's well into its existence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in in San Francisco. There's there's a lot of Billy all over the world, which is amazing considering the year we've we've come out of or this current pandemic condition that we're in. And, And that's really what the two gallery shows at Lehman Maupin in, in Seoul and in London are are focused on, right? This idea of being at home and, and getting it done. So you're kind of the answer to the question I've been asking since March 2020, which is not even two years ago, but seems like 200,000 years ago at this point. You know, and that question is, how do artists make meaningful work at home and you have and and you do so i'm wondering if we can start by talking about what your mindset is when you're able to carve out the space and find the time to do your thing how do you get into it yeah i'm absolutely a deadline person so that's actually how i get into my creative space i need a bit of adrenaline i need a bit of pressure and um, yeah, and just that sense of excitement, you know, and anticipation, because I'm also a bit of a last minute artist, so it's always a bit risky. <laughs> so I'm always like negotiating deadlines and, you know, all that sort of stuff and, and trying to push out shipping. And I know a little bit about shipping, so I can actually negotiate with some, with some knowledge. Um, so that's really what gets me into the creative space. But apart from that, it's my love for what I do. And I guess it's also, you know, the daily experiences that that inspire me. So basically, I am a homebody. And I've always been since I was a child, like my siblings would go wander off and I would just sit at home and find something interesting to do. So I think it was only natural that I would start sharing my safe space, my sanctuary and the experiences that I have in that space. So it's been a very interesting two years. It really has been. It's um Yeah, I have to say that it feels like somehow this is my time. And I don't know how long your time is supposed to last. And I'm not even thinking about that. But I do feel like, you know, my voice came at just the right moment in a way. 
in terms of, you know, besides deadlines, because I'm very deadline oriented too, but there's all these other things, right? The coffee has to come at the right time. The light has to be coming through the window in a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, you have, is your son eight or nine? He's just 10, nine. You have a nine-year-old, so your nine-year-old has mm -hmm. to be occupied in, in the correct way to allow you to get, get anything done. So what are some of those other small factors that, that are important besides the deadline? Well, it's just, I guess it's just my need to, to express myself. You know, I've always been an expressive person. You know, I love to draw, even when I'm not having a show. Like for many, many years, I couldn't really find my flow, but I created every single day. You know, I had a job from Monday to Friday, but Friday night through to Sunday night, I would be at home making something. So I feel that it's it's my purpose in life. So I always make time for it. And it's the way I pay my bills. <laughs> I know that sounds so basic, <laughs> but I do have to kind of, you know, set myself certain goals. You know, I have to treat it a little bit like a creative business um, and find some discipline. And the reason I need to do that is because if I don't, then I end up making one work in six months. So I've just, I've got to have those kind of strict things in place. And actually, you know, you mentioned something about how the light's got to be right and all of that. For me, I have to tidy up the house. So when the house is really messy, sometimes I actually cry while tidying up because I'm like, I really want to work. But if I have to look at that, I know it's not going to happen. So I can spend half a day tidying up but it just seems to be part of my ritual. And then I put on my, my Adidas shoes as well that I've had for a really long time. So I do have these, these little things that have to be, you know, just right before I can, I can do my thing. So domestic work is, is a big part of getting me ready for creativity. I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. It's, it's like, oh, it's time to write a script, but there's dishes again, you know, th that has to be right. right. And somebody has to be fed. And there's definitely a lot to do on, on that front. I love that you have work in, in the show called Whatever It Takes, which is about those shoes. Yes, exactly. I mean, I know a lot of people think it's a departure, but I think it's, I think it's a natural extension. Um, because it's so intimate, you know, that's something that I haven't really shared with people about my creative process. So, and I, I love that work in its simplicity. So let's go back to these, let's go back to these shoes. One of the things I like about this piece is that um, I, I think you said somewhere that you just can't let go of them. No, I can't. They like, they don't support me anymore. And I went to shop the other day and I bought some shoes, but they're not working shoes. So I'm still putting them on. But I've been like that since I was very young. I, I attach sentiment to objects. So like clothing in particular. So my mom would see me wearing this torn dress and she'd be like, it's time to let that thing go. And I'm like, no, but it's my favorite dress. And I have all these amazing memories attached to it. And so what she would do then is that while I was at school, it would conveniently disappear. And I'd be looking at, for it and she'd be like, I don't know, maybe you lost it in your room. <laughs> but she would take it upon herself to, to free me <laughs> of, of the sentiment. <laughs> Can you t tell me about your mom? I mean, I think that's an interesting, you know, part of the, the story in terms of, you know, where you were raised and, and why and how it was kind of driven by your, your mom's idea of... Uh, the kind of woman she wanted you to be maybe and the kind of freedom she wanted you to have aside from not letting you wear the clothes you wanted to wear. Yeah. So I would say that my mom and I are opposites actually, because my mom was really not born free and underprivileged and very badly educated with no prospects whatsoever. 
And then, you know, her and my father found themselves in a position where I didn't have to have that narrative. And because of all the things that she'd experienced, she really just wanted to have girl children that had possibilities. Right. This is why you were raised in Botswana, even though you were born in Malawi. Yes. And we ended up in Botswana, which was an incredible move um, because it's such a progressive country and um, women have a lot of freedom there and rights and equality. And what's really nice about it is, is that it's not, you know, it's not based on some kind of protests or, or changing legislation. It just seems like the society understands the importance of uplifting women. It was a truly beautiful experience, just like teaching you about a certain way of seeing the world, you know, just even like racial stuff, you know, all of that, just being taught about equality across across the color lines and all of that. And, and that kind of made me feel equal, if, if you know what I mean. Whereas I have a mother who was born under oppression based on her skin tone. So all of that is just, you know, a very interesting narrative. Do you think being raised in, in that kind of environment gave you a way to think about this daily feminism that, that you put into your, your work and uh, ascribe power to those things? Yeah, I guess, I, I, guess I, I was given that level of freedom to just kind of explore ideas I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I was young, I was like, I'm not going to be staying at home. I'm not going to be a housewife. <laughs> I'm not going to do things that women do. You know, when my mom and sister were cooking in the kitchen, I would sit in the windowsill and read some beautiful book. <laughs> so because I'm like, I'm going to educate myself, uplift myself. I'm not going to do this woman's work. So it's actually really ironic that I've actually gone back to that same thing that I was rejecting for so long. Um, but the only thing that really afforded me to go back was having the option to do so, you know, being educated and empowered um, gave me that possibility to choose. I want to ask you about that phrase, daily feminism, because it's it's something that, that comes up when I read about your work, and it's something that you say. And, and I'm wondering if you could describe what it means in, in broader terms. Well, I guess what it means is that, yes, I am a feminist, but I'm not using any kind of intellectual, philosophical, grandly gestured historical ways to express it, that I'm really just affirming um, female identity and, and seeing the power in it and, and um, what part it plays in our society, you know, raising our children, keeping the homes going, supporting everybody. It's actually very, very important in our society, but we take it for granted because it's happening on the daily, you know, on the daily. What was the, I mean, there's a turning point, I think, in, in your work, right? Before your son was born, I think your, your work was about some other things. And then it, it kind of moved into this territory of the home, of the family, of friendships, of things that are uh, closer and, and closer and, and things that are internal and then really direct extensions of, of yourself. I mean, you made beautiful work earlier in your career that have to do with the natural world and the physically built world and the way bodies, you know, interact with those settings. But then you came inside the home and uh, there's just this, this power and there, this tenderness that's really striking. So I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, that transformative moment when the work became more interior and, and came inside literally and figuratively. 
So I had already started sharing, you know, my personal life with people, you know, and works like the rebirth of the Black Venus. I shared, you know, how I felt that I was going through a change where I was shedding a skin and kind of um, accepting myself a bit more. That's an incredible um, piece. So, hey? That's an incredible piece. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I still love that piece. I saw it in, in San Francisco and I was like, oh my God, you are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so I had already kind of started to do the sharing thing. And then I honestly never thought I'd have a child because I'm a very complicated woman. <laughs> So, you know, I've had I've had a few boyfriends, some near marriages and all of that. And then I got to my late 30s and I started to feel quite sad about it, actually, because I really always wanted to have a family. And then suddenly, miraculously, the, the planets shifted and and I had my son just before my 40th birthday. And it was the most incredible experience of my life. Like, literally, I had I had not lived until you know, until my son came into my life. And, and I just, I just felt this impulse to share that with everyone. I was just like, I've got to make work about this. And I spoke to, to my dear friend, Henri, who's, who's passed on. Um, and I said, you know, I really want to make this work about me and my baby. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't make works about you and your baby. It's too sentimental. People don't want to hear about a woman at home with her baby. So then I kind of, I was put off a bit, you know, so I had to go and think about it. And then I think I made one or two works in between, but something just like kept saying, you've got to take the risk. It was just like, if people don't like it, if they find it sentimental, if they don't find it meaningful, then you know what, at least you would have taken a risk. So, so that's when I finally made the, the first work um, in that series, which is um, a work called My Vie en Rose, where I'm making milk for my son in early morning in, in the kitchen. And yes, and I forced my gallery to show it. <laughs> and actually it, it was very well received. So I felt like being authentic is actually worth the risk because it, being authentic means being vulnerable, right? Which means criticism is going to be very difficult to take. But yeah, I mean, for me, it, it, was, it was the beginning of a new journey yeah, I love the honesty of, of that work. And I mean, it's a scene I, I recognize from my own home, my wife, you know, carrying our baby on her hip, standing at the stove, or, you know, you can substitute me into that picture, too. But it's just this very tender moment of, of honest parenting. And, the, you know, there's a lot going on in that kitchen. I love the colors you chose, too, because they're very, they're very brilliant. And it kind of shows that there is this dreamlike state also this kind of you know fantasy in, in the coloring of parenting a, a child especially you know a, a new one did you make that in, in in real time yes yeah so it was pretty close to to when he was that age so I mean it was about a couple of months when I did the research photos and I did the drawing and then I put it away because I was told that it might not be well received but it was not long after that that I that I made it. So isn't that a great moment when you decide that you're not going to listen to what people are telling you about your creative work and you just do what you know is right? Yeah, and I'm not a very courageous person, so I'm actually quite proud of myself. Maybe it's that whole mother thing. It just makes you courageous, you know, because you you don't sleep much. You get up every two hours to take care of another human being, and you get up at five a.m. to make milk, and you don't shower for days. <laughs> I think that can potentially actually make a person 
a lot more courageous. You mentioned, you know, the photographs and the drawings. And I think it's important to say, because we haven't said yet that, you know, your pieces are made from from hand stitched raw silk. So there's, you know, many layers of of fabric and in many different colors. And you've been working in this medium for a long time. You previously worked in, in fashion before, so you have a connection to, to textile and material. But can you tell me about the decision to work in, in, in raw silk in, in this manner? And where did you learn how to sew? I learned how to sew when I was very, very young. So first I saw my mom and her friends sewing, you know, and, um, and it sparked my curiosity. But for some reason, I didn't ask my mother to teach me. I just watched. I think it was an interesting thing for me to just watch. So then um, at one of my primary schools, they actually offered it as an extracurricular activity. So I thought, you know what? This is so cool. How interesting. I can do this at school. So I started maybe when I was about seven or eight. And uh, I did that all through primary school. And then in high school, I started to modify my clothes and things like that and actually make clothes. So, you know, I, I learned how to sew very young. And, and getting to the silk. <laughs> so the silk was actually accidental. Uh, I, it, it was like I was meant, you know, we had a meeting. We had a rendezvous, basically. That's what it was. Um, so I was back at home after university. And I didn't really have any resources for printmaking, which is what I specialized in. And I just couldn't imagine myself working in oil paints. I mean, I don't actually like the chemicals. I'm very sensitive to them. So I knew that wasn't going to be an option for me. And I'd already done, you know, things like watercolor and charcoal drawing. I'd already kind of explored them at university and I wanted to do something a bit more interesting. And, um, and actually a friend of mine showed me a trunk full of fabrics. And that's really what started it all for me because she was like, you know, I can see you're stuck. You don't know where to go next. You don't know what to do, but I've seen that you really seem to love fashion and textiles. So why don't you just see if there's something in here that could inspire you? So, so actually it was an earth angel that guided me in the right direction. And it made sense because, you know, it doesn't give off any chemical smells and it doesn't cost me anything. All I need is some thread and a needle and some pins and scissors. And that was something that I definitely could afford to, you know, to buy. I think my DNA is in those fabrics and the fabrics DNA is probably in me and we, we're just one, one being. But yes, it's been, it's been a beautiful journey of discovery um i'm definitely the type of person who just wants to keep going and see if there are any more secrets that can be revealed to me because i literally do feel like i have to surrender to my medium and that when i do that it it lets me know you know what else i can do with it um yeah so i mean i'd, I'd love to do some interesting experimental things for the soul um for the soul show i've done like a, a deconstructed kind of small installation called Family Ties. So I think even if I have to go into the installation or performance or anything like that, for me, it would still be in the silk um, because we have a relationship now. We're, we're kind of married. Tell me about that piece, Family Ties. Yeah, so that piece is about my son's family. So it's basically his family um, tree, just tracing his genetic path. And it just looks at how all these people got together in this configuration to make my son basically, and, and how he's this unique genetic combination. It's really just, I'm still adoring my son, you know, from my Viaros to him being nine years old and fixated with soccer, uh, you know, the love I feel for him. I don't know if this was intentional when you started making work that features him, 
but one of the results of, of pursuing work about your child is you have this beautiful chronology of his life through your work. Was that intentional from the beginning or is it more of an organic thing? And then you kind of realize, because you, you have essentially the equivalent of a fine art family album in a way. I mean, who, who gets to have that? That's incredible. Yeah, so that's actually what I say to my son all the time. I say to him, you're so lucky. I'm not good at taking photos and, you know, documenting everything and archiving. But you will you will have all of these amazing artworks that I've made about you to tell you about every stage of your life. And I do feel like it's the greatest gift that I can give my child. The rest of us have, you know, a lot of um, iPhone pictures of, of our children. And, and your son, you know, his, his, the story of his life is hanging on three continents right now. <laughs> like, yeah, it totally is. Yeah. But he's so cheeky. The one time he said to me, you know, mommy, maybe one day you'll have to ask me if I want to be in one of your works. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to him, what do you mean when you're a teenager? Or do you mean like right now? <laughs> but then I said to him, well, you know, you have to look at it this way. This is how I make a living. This is how I pay for the iPad and the December holidays and all of those luxury things that we all love to have in our lives. So he has to decide whether he wants to participate or not. I mean, I only said that half jokingly, like if he really did become a grumpy teenager and just said, don't do it, I would respect his boundaries. The other consistent subject in, in your work, uh, you know, over the last nine years is you. How do you see your own evolution when you look back on your work from a piece when you were a new mother to, you know, the most recent suite of, of works that include things about, you know, your shoes and you in kind of meditative poses and then also you, you know, at the table sort of tending to your son while you guys are both trying to do your, your work, his schoolwork and your, your career, your, your art. How do you see yourself when you kind of look across that spectrum? Well, it's very, it's very interesting because I think... Well, first, I, I'm not as thin as I used to be. So now I'm trying not to do any full length. <laughs> you know, the, I can't lie to the world and fake like I've still got a small waist. But um, I think for me, the most interesting thing about self-examination, which is, which is what I call what I do, is just to see how I feel about myself when I make work. Because sometimes I really don't like myself when I'm making a work. And it's like, I have to like overcome that and find a place of self-love because what I'm trying to say with the piece is not about like my negative feelings towards myself. It's about different feelings. So I think actually, you know, exploring the self tells you a lot about where you are in your relationship with yourself. So, so it's been a very, very tricky journey for me. And I've also realized that when I make works of other people, it's so easy for me. I'm just like one, two, three, boom. But the challenge is always when I make work about with me in it. That's when it's like, okay, so now I have to overcome all of these things, all of these feelings, all of these, you know, thoughts. How do you do it? I just keep going at it. Sometimes I cry and I try not to get tears on the work. And then sometimes I actually have to go and do some love exercises. And then sometimes I have to ask myself, why am I feeling this way about myself? What's going on? What are love exercises? Is it literally like look in the mirror, tell yourself that like you love yourself? Or? I did. I do do those and I've gotten, they've become natural now. It's taken me a long time. I think I've been doing them for about two years and now it's like much easier. But, you know, I'll do small things like I'll go for a walk or maybe I'll put Radio Nova on and dance for two hours or, you know, I just have just these, these little things. Go and sit and sunbathe 
just like what I call my my little acts of, of self-love. I think the titles of the shows that you have up right now are are from a, a song that you heard on Radio Nova, yes? Yes, yeah. And actually, some of the other songs are also um, from... I, I've always I referenced songs, actually. So my Vien Rose is obviously La Vien Rose. Um, Body and Soul is from an Anita Baker song, or that she's got an album as well called that. And then for Soul, I made a work called Loving Eyes. And there's a song when she says, I've got loving eyes of my own. So, you know, I like to, I like to make reference to popular culture, you know, music and cinema and even just, just like um, pop images, images like my shoes. They're very relatable. You know, a lot of people wear that brand. So it's not, you know, something that they have to think about when when they look at it it's relatable it's interesting to think that the the songs that are pulled from these you know these walks you might go on or these self-dance parties you might have where you know these are the love exercises for yourself so it's not just oh i like this song but it, it came at a time when i needed it you know more more earth angels exactly because i have not listened to anita baker since i was about 14 years old and um, i was doing vocal lessons so i was very interested in her technique and all of that it was the, the 80s, no, early 90s, late 80s. So for me to come back to her after all of these years is actually very interesting, especially when I'm exploring concepts of love, because I think she's very romantic. And she's also, you know, she's raw. She just like, she reveals herself. So there are all these different interesting narratives in, in her different songs. So, so you, I, I absolutely agree with you that things come to you at the right time when, when you need them. The, some of the language used to describe the, the new show in, in the press release I read from the gallery, it's, it's incredibly optimistic. The sentence really struck me that the work is about a, a newfound appreciation for family, labor, and ritual that resulted from living and working in isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that's a really interesting framing of things and that, you know, we've come to a place now where we can see what we appreciate about this time that's been really hard. And I'm wondering if you could speak about the evolution and, and what it took to get to a place of, of appreciation, because I think we've all had days during this pandemic where, oh man, sad, you know, very, very sad. No, very, very sad. But I, I think that it really had to come into focus. I think we all had to see that we've been going in the wrong direction as a species. So, I mean, I, I was always a flawed person, you know, doubting myself and, you know, low self-esteem and all of that stuff. And, um, and then when my father died, I struggled a lot with his passing. Like I just wasn't handling it. So I went into therapy. And so I looked at myself. I had to look at myself every Friday afternoon for four and a half years. And it just made me realize that, you know, love begins with the self that I have to learn to love myself. And that's really where the kind of the mirror work and the little rituals of self-love that I do for myself came from. But obviously I needed a professional psychologist to guide me because I was walking in the dark, not understanding the different decisions I'd made or why it was so hard for me to let go of my father. Why was it so devastating, you know, that I couldn't live without his physical form? Um, I think it's, you know, it spoke, it spoke to something. So, so that's, you know, so that's the long journey that, that I've been on. And, and then early last year, I did a show called Soldier of Love, you know, because over the years, a lot of things had happened, like having my son, who was my love teacher, 
but also understanding that I could just love this person unconditionally. Like literally he doesn't have to do anything. He just has to exist <laughs> and I love him. So, you know, he's been my love teacher. So I think for me, that's when the idea of love started to really form a picture. Um, but I also feel that, you know, with COVID and, and all the inequalities that have just been magnified, I think it's actually a message for every single one of us that we've got to start showing more love firstly towards ourselves and the rest of humanity because actually at the end of the day we are a global community you know it's not this sector of society that sector of society like when one person's unhappy it impacts the whole so if we can stop thinking so selfishly and exclusively and kind of also you know not feeling like you know it doesn't it's not my problem if people are dying in south africa it's actually it doesn't bother me because i'm living a safe life i feel like it's time for us to, to, show, to show real compassion and love. And, and I honestly think that's why COVID is here because it's time for change. The way we've been going hasn't been fantastic. Do you try to transmit that through your work? Is one of your goals as an artist to, to help others in their, their kind of journey towards love as well? I, I, I think, you know, in my little way, yes, because, you know, I say that if I can just reach one person for me, that's enough. I don't have huge ambitions. And that's also another thing that happened in the lockdown was that I was like, oh, my God, my work is so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. There's so much work to be done. Am I really going to go and make another textile work? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was really quite depressed. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, this is this is the voice you have. So just do the best you can with, you know, with what you've been given. For me, there was so, a real, a real wavering, you know, where I felt like, what, what is it that I, what am I doing? And then other days, you know, I talk to people. That's what I do. I'm talking to you right now. I ask questions. And other days that felt really important to be like a vessel for, for communication and to amplify other, other people's voices. And then the next day I was like, what am I doing? And, <laughs> you right? know, it's, it's the cycle. Yeah, when we, when we really think about the big picture. Our little complaints are so meaningless and small. So actually my therapist hasn't seen me since COVID because I thought to myself, oh my God, there are people suffering all over the world and I need to pay somebody a lot of money every Friday to go and whinge and complain about my life. It just suddenly just, just like didn't make sense to me at all. It's like, I've got the courage inside of me. I can overcome, you know what I mean? Like I can... I can talk myself out of that bad space. I can deal with the bad things that happen, you know, in my life that I wish hadn't happened. I can. Talk to me about, you know, the space you're in when you are sewing and when you're taking thread to, to silk. What's, is it a meditative space? Is it a space of intensity? Is it a space of, of reflection? Is it a space of self-criticism? Is it a space of progress? Is it all of those things? Yeah, so, so the sewing is, yes, definitely for me, it's, it's a place of meditation because it's like a repetitive action. So I can switch off the brain, but before I switch off the brain, I kind of tend to process things. So feelings and thoughts and any kind of fear as well. Like if I'm really scared about an upcoming show, that just takes away all the fear. So I have a wonderful woman that comes to help me sew when I have a show, but I always make sure that I sew because I know that it's very, very important for just, you know, just my centeredness, which is important for my creativity. You're very emotionally honest. Have you always been this way or is it the therapy? No, no, I used to be very closed. And now I'm just like, 
I'm just out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the therapy helped me a lot. I used to be a very guarded person. Very guarded. I'm very excited to see your your future work too. I feel like you're just expanding and expanding and expanding, you know? I'm also very excited. I feel like I'm just a baby. I feel like a seedling, you know, and that's finally been given the sunlight to like find out what, you know, what kind of plant I can be. Billy, what's what's coming up for you after this um, massively productive period of, of shows and, and work making? What are you excited about? What's what's next? Wow. Well, so next year is uh, is another <laughs> is another busy year. And um, so I'm really excited to see because I feel like this is a jumping off point for me creatively somehow. And I'm just so curious to see what I'm going to make for those two shows that are coming up next year. But I'm also, you know, in between, I'm also looking forward to taking a beach holiday with my son um, because we're so similar. We love to go to a hotel where, they, where there's room service or, you know, food brought to you. <laughs> and then we love a beautiful swimming pool next to the sea. <laughs> and actually, we don't really swim in the sea because our seas are actually quite um, tempestuous here. But we just love being in the pool water and imagining that we're in the sea. So... So for me, that's kind of the, the balancing thing that I do is, is just go and, and have somebody else take care of me and just spend time with my son. Yeah, so I look forward to that. So that's what I'll be doing next month. Is there a point where your, your workload becomes too big to carry out at, at home and, and you might be inclined to, you know, be, be in, a, in a studio? Can we leave, can we leave home? That. It's coming to that because... I wanted to cook when I was working for these shows and I couldn't, and I found it very frustrating. So, so I think I do have to make a plan. I have a space at home, but it's not, I mean, it's at least it's a space dedicated to, to creating. But I think what drew me to the kitchen is, is the light and the size of it, because it's not that small. Um, and the light's just amazing that goes through the windows. It really is, is incredible. So if I found a space like this that wasn't too far from home, because I don't like to commute, actually. I'm not a commuter. Um, so a job outside the house would be a nightmare for me. <laughs> but yes, but I, I think it is getting to time to move out the kitchen. That was Billy Zangewa. Billy's show, Running Water, is up at Lehman Maupin Gallery in London through January 8th. Flesh and Blood, her show at Lehman Maupin's Gallery in Seoul, South Korea, runs through January 15th. Thread for a Web Begun, Billy's exhibition at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, runs through February 27th. For reservations at the Nomad London, it's www.thenomadhotel.com London. Thank you for listening to Common Decency. Our show is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our theme music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Sarah Levine, Alejandro Hassan, Andrew Zobler, Isadora McKeon, Kristen Millar, and Stefan Merriweather. Common Decency will return soon with a brand new guest. This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking out 